Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 3rd. Today, the government shutdown drags on with no clear path toward a solution. And an increasingly diverse Congress is still overwhelmingly white behind the scenes. Today is the first day of the new Congress, which is kind of like the first day of school on Capitol Hill, with new senators and representatives being sworn in, many of them bringing their families. Vice President Mike Pence is there. And of course, there's a lot of press. But now imagine if on the first day of school, you had to take a big test. Because we're still in the middle of a partial government shutdown. And it's up to the new Congress to figure out what to do. Which way do we go? We went to the Capitol to talk to political reporter Sung Min Kim. She took us to the Ohio Clock Corridor, where reporters often grab senators as they walk by. Hi, Senator Schumer. Good morning, Mr. Leader. (laughs) And this is a lot of Sung Min's job today waiting for senators to walk by so she can flag them down and ask them about what they're going to do. So I spend a lot of my time here in this exact corridor and downstairs by the Senate trains, the little subways that, you know, ferry members of the Senate to and from the office buildings. This will be the first time for us to really talk to members of Congress since the shutdown began almost two weeks ago. And how do people feel right now? Are Republicans feeling impatient with the president? We know what Mitch McConnell has said, that he won't vote, he won't put anything on the floor that the president won't sign. But is he hearing from, you know, for example, example, people like Susan Collins, who is a moderate, who is a pragmatist and doesn't like government shutdowns. Is she pushing him or is she pushing others for a broader solution? We'll find out. The Democrats have put forward a strategy to end the government shutdown that would split the big funding package into two separate bills. So basically, Democrats in the House are saying, why don't we fund the rest of the government now and then give ourselves more time to figure out the border security part? They really want to isolate the disputed issue, which is that wall funding. And their argument to Republicans and their argument to the president is, why are we, you know, letting the national parks suffer longer? Why are we letting the Treasury not be able to operate at full capacity when the only thing we really disagree on at this point is the wall? But at the White House meeting yesterday, you know, sources told us and other news outlets that Trump said he would, quote, look foolish if he took that offer. So that's not something that Republicans will be accepting anytime soon. And we'll have to see if Democrats come up with a new plan to try to pressure Republicans or what they do after that. So even Senate Republicans say this kind of two-bill package isn't something that they would accept. Because it sounds like it's sort of a happy medium where you could fund the rest of the government. And then if you have a very short-term Homeland Security funding bill that kind of buys another month to, to have negotiations. But that is unacceptable also to... Exactly, to because the the president believes that he has to keep this current pressure up of a government shutdown on Democrats to get the wall funding. The problem is for the president that that pressure doesn't seem to be moving Democrats at all. So if the Democrats' plan 
isn't going to work, then what are Senate Republicans' plan to end the shutdown? They're just kind of hanging back and seeing what the president says he will sign. Because one important kind of procedural deal that senators reached uh, before the shutdown officially began is that we're not doing any show votes. We're not going to do something that just won't pass for the sake of showing that something can or can't pass the Senate. We're not going to waste our time, basically. But that raises the question, what will the president sign? And I think even Republicans aren't quite sure because we've seen how the president multiple times have undercut people, even within his own administration, about what he would sign. You know, Vice President came and spoke with Senate Republicans in a private lunch before the shutdown began. And Republicans came away from that lunch feeling pretty confident that the president would sign a funding bill without the full wall funding that he wants. But as we know, on the day 13th of a shutdown, he did not. So do Republicans care about this wall as much as President Trump does? I think they really do care about border security. They do support a wall. Most of them do support a wall. But I'm not sure they agree with the strategy because they know shutdowns and the party that causes them are political losers. But there is a faction of House Republicans who thinks this is a good idea, who thinks Democrats can cave with the pressure of a shutdown. And that's part of the reason why the president has dug in. But the vast majority of Republicans said before the shutdown began that there wouldn't be a shutdown because we know it's a stupid idea. <laughs> so it, it seems like Nancy Pelosi's strategy is to find those Republicans who are feeling not good about the shutdown, who don't feel like the wall and border security is worth the potential political ramifications of having this extended partial shutdown. Is she going to find enough of those Republicans who are feeling icky about what's going on right now to come over to her side? It's not even Nancy Pelosi's job. It's actually more Chuck Schumer's job, the guy who just walked by mm. us in the in the Ohio clock a few minutes ago, because the Senate is where you need more of a consensus because you do need 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything, and neither party has 60 votes. But also, the Senate is where there is more of a sense of compromise. There are more kind of pragmatic Republicans dealmaker Republicans who see the downfalls and the pitfalls of a shutdown. But also remember that there are going to be, in almost two years, a lot of Republicans up for election in blue states. So Cory Gardner of Colorado, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who are going to have to distance themselves from the president and his confrontational tactics. Do they start agitating for a solution and pressuring McConnell? That'll be something to watch as well. And that's why the Senate could be more of a crucial player here. For Democrats trying to find some kind of middle ground with President Trump right now, like what is the path for negotiating with someone who does not want to negotiate? I think Chuck Schumer called negotiating with Trump negotiating with Jello because, again, this is someone who, you know, can turn on a dime what he wants and what he is seeking, as we've seen over multiple negotiations and as we've seen over the last couple of weeks with the shutdown. So that's why Democrats feel that they can't 
negotiate with the administration if they don't even know what they want or if they don't even know what the president will actually sign. And we've seen even in the last several days differing definitions of what a wall really even means from this administration and his allies. You have Lindsey Graham saying the wall is actually a metaphor for border security. You have John Kelly, the, the outgoing chief of staff, saying, oh, we gave up on the idea of a concrete wall a long time ago. And you have Kellyanne Conway talking about drones and border security in that sense. So Democrats and Republicans are left wondering, okay, so what does the administration really want? What is their bottom line? What will they sign? And I think that's been tough for negotiations as well. And that's why things on Capitol Hill feel a little jello-y <laughs> right now. Um, and <laughs> trying to is a good word. <laughs> and, figure, and figuring out how to end the shutdown. You said that Mitch McConnell will not bring anything to the Senate floor that he doesn't feel confident the president will sign. Correct. Why? He thinks it's just a waste of time, because if the president's not going to sign something, then why take the effort to vote on it? But it could, in theory, pass with a veto-proof majority, right? It could. And that's kind of the next step that we'll see, that if there's enough pressure, again, from Republicans to put up this bill or something similar on the floor that we know can pass with, you know, 67 plus votes, which is the veto proof majority in the Senate, maybe Mitch McConnell changes his mind and decides to put that bill on the floor. Because we know that there is, you know, basically unanimity in the Senate for passing a funding bill without border wall funding. The Senate did do it unanimously before the shutdown began. So setting aside the dynamics with the mercurial president, I think there's definitely a veto-proof majority for what we call a clean funding bill. But again, McConnell needs to be in lockstep with the president right now because he has to back up what the White House is calling for. And that includes promising not to put legislation on the floor that the president himself won't sign. Interesting. So even though Senate Republicans already passed a bill that doesn't have border wall funding and they were fine with that because President Trump says that he wants border wall funding, they won't bring any bill to the floor again that doesn't have you know that $5 billion for the wall in there simply because they don't want to insult the president, not because they're categorically opposed to having any bill that doesn't include border wall funding, but just because the president doesn't want it, so they're Pretty not going to pass it. Pretty much. That's wild. <laughs> Welcome to Congress. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sungmin. Oh, thanks for having me. Sungmin Kim covers the White House and Congress for The Post. I'm particularly proud to be the woman speaker of the House of this Congress, which marks the 100th year of women having the right to vote. The freshman class of the 116th Congress is the most racially and ethnically diverse group ever sent to the Capitol. And that we all have the ability and the privilege to serve with over 100 women members of Congress, the largest number in history. But politics reporter Colby Itkowitz says that that improvement in diversity is still pretty modest. In the 115th Congress, which was the last two years, there were 89 women. There'll be 106 women. For the last two years, there were 103 people of color, there'll be 116. 
And even if lawmakers themselves are getting more representative of America, Colby says that that change doesn't necessarily translate to staff and legislation. Well, it's no surprise to anyone that Congress has never accurately represented the United States at large. It's always been a much larger share of white and male. The share of females and African-Americans, Latinos and Asian lawmakers is significantly lower than the percentage that they make up in the population as a whole. And that will still continue to be true, significantly skewed towards white men in Congress. Yeah, because we talk about all of these firsts that are happening in Congress, the first female Native American lawmaker. You have Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But all of these increases in, in women and women of color are still pretty incremental. It's very incremental. So thinking not just about the lawmakers themselves, but the staff, the, you know, the staffers who work for them, what have they looked like? So this Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies actually took the time to look at top staffers in every House office. And what they found is that out of, you know, more than 1,174 top House staffers, 1,103 were white. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So So like, I mean, I'm trying to do the math in my head, but that's like less than 10 percent of any of these top staffers are people of color. Yeah. And what might even surprise you more is that three of the five, I guess you could say, worst offenders. I I would call them worst offenders. of of, Of not having any top staff that is diverse are themselves Minorities. No way. Mm-hmm. Really? Who, yeah. Who are they? So you have Nanette Bergan from California. You have Juan Vargas from California and Alice Hastings from Florida. But Nanette Bergan's district is 93% people of color. You're kidding. Yeah. And so that That's doesn't wild. mean that there's not people in her office that are people of color. And another one that people are going to find really surprising that has a very diverse district and no top staff of color as of the time that the center did this. And this was publicly available data as of June 1st, was uh, Beto O'Rourke. All of his top staffers are all white people. Yes. Yes. It seems like that kind of undermines the fact that he is this sort of symbol for what I think a lot of millennials, millennials of color see as the new wave of Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's been kind of compared to being the next Barack Obama. Why is this happening? Like, why aren't we seeing more people of color in these positions on the Hill? There's a few things, right? There's the opportunities for internships and access to working on the Hill. I mean, listen, when you work on Capitol Hill, you get paid peanuts. And I'm broadly generalizing, and so I apologize to anyone (laughs) that that this wasn't their experience. But Washington is a very expensive city. Extremely expensive. Extremely expensive. So to live here and work here and to be making hardly any money. You probably have to have family who are living in the district, probably are middle class or higher, or getting help from your family elsewhere that can kind of subsidize your your living expenses Exactly. So if you're looking for staff that's going to reflect a broad variety of American experiences, and you want to look at people that came from low-income backgrounds, it might be harder for them to accept a job on Capitol Hill. But I also feel like the thing that a lot of folks don't understand is, like, how much power these people have, these senior staffers, chief of staff, you know, legislative director. Like, these are the people who are actually writing legislation yes. and who are deciding what their boss's position on a certain policy will be. Absolutely. It is not the congressman or woman or the senator who's, like, sitting in their office late at night drafting legislation. Those are their staffers. Their staffers are doing the research and meeting with lobbyists 
and crunching numbers and figuring out the best positions for their boss to take. And so it is a tremendous amount of power to be close to power. <laughs> and when you have all white staffers, that means that, you know, the, the different issues that would affect black people or Hispanic people or Asian Americans, that those perspectives are not represented in how legislation is written, how it's structured, and how it's executed. On a breadth of issues from education to healthcare to taxes. And so if you're going to be looking at it through only one lens, which is how Congress has operated for ever, then there's going to be a whole swath of people that are going to be left out. It almost feels like Democrats in Congress are kind of cheating, right? Like they get to benefit from the fact that they are the more diverse party, mm -hmm. more people of color. And yet their constituents aren't benefiting from actually having like the intellectual right. diversity that would really make a difference for regular people's lives. Well, and so Nancy Pelosi had said that she wants to establish a diversity office. And the diversity office's main goal is going to be to recruit staff from different backgrounds. She talked about formalizing what's called the Rooney Rule, which is from the NFL, which requires... Oh, I that. Yeah, which is... Apparently, it's a guideline barred from the NFL that requires there be a person of color interviewed for every top position that is open in their office. So every time you have an open job, you have a list of candidates, and at least one of those candidates has to be a person of color. Exactly. You may not hire them, but you at least have to bring them in to interview them. Exactly. Exactly. And so that is how the Democrats will begin trying to diversify their staffs, which the fact that Nancy Pelosi is even bringing this up suggests to me that she knows it's a problem. Thank you so much, Colby. And thank you for having me. Colby Itkowitz reports on all things politics at The Post. And now, one more thing. What's that? That is an alarm horn off a World War II destroyer. I rigged it up just to irritate my employees. Bill Panagopoulos is probably one of the more interesting people I've met in my 18 and a half years at The Washington Post. Reporter Ian Shapira recently went to an auction house to pay a visit to an auctioneer named Bill Panagopoulos. Bill runs Alexander Historical Auctions in Maryland, and it's a place that's currently at the center of this debate over who should get to purchase controversial historical artifacts. He grew up in the shipping industry and he got into the auction business back in the 1990s. At first, he was collecting and selling autographs of famous people. And then at some point, shortly afterwards, he got into militaria, as it's called, and the buying and selling of Holocaust material. Uh, Jan maybe 100 bucks, 150 bucks. There's, there's a set of three, one with Mussolini, one with Hitler, and this one. This one's in rough shape. So Bill has sold all kinds of things from Nazi Germany's past. He has sold particularly many things from Hitler. He's auctioned off the journals of Nazi death camp doctor Joseph Mengele for $300,000. He auctioned off Hitler's telephone from the Fuhrer bunker for $243,000. The buyers that everyone I talk with about this find fascinating are the Jewish buyers. Some of them donate it away and give it to institutions. Some of them keep it for their own personal taste. They stuff it away in drawers closets in the basement somewhere so no one else can see it, but they like it for themselves. They want to remember. 
There are also other people out there, non-Jews, who collect it because they have a particular fascination with the Third Reich. It's not to say that these folks are anti-Semites. And in fact, this is something that Bill is very eager to point out, which is that he does not interact with anti-Semites or neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis do not buy this stuff. They don't have the means for it, and they would have no historical appreciation for it, even if they had the means to buy it. The controversy around these artifacts is that some Jews and other people believe that this material should be buried, should not be seen by the public, and should not be bought and sold. The other side of that is, of course, Bill, who believes that history should not be censored and that people should not forget this and people should be reminded of the kinds of things that a terrible regime put out. A dinner knife, or I don't know what it is, caviar knife. No, we really get some fascinating stuff. We have no love for this stuff. This debate, much like the debate over Confederate statues, you know, prompts some very deep and philosophical questions. Which items of our past are worth preserving? Which are worth discarding entirely? Should we be buying and selling terrible, grisly things of the past for our own personal safekeeping. That's the kind of debate that Bill is bringing to the table here. That's it for Post Reports. Share your thoughts on this episode of the show over Twitter. We'll spot you if you use the hashtag PostReports. And as always, we'd love if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.